Look at chapter 4. We're on message number 9, I think, in a series on the Gospel of Luke. And we're, we're going to take a break from it after this and go into something else. Because um, Luke is obsessed with the Holy Spirit. And in fact, up to this point, so we're in chapter 4. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out we've done three chapters and not quite three and a half, but three and a bit. Luke has already mentioned the Holy Spirit 13 times. He is obsessed with the Holy Spirit. And Luke is the guy who then went on to write part two, uh, the book of Acts, and went on to talk about the Holy Spirit. And Luke is the guy who traveled with Paul a lot. And the two of them both just can't get enough. And they can't talk enough about the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do is Luke has led us to this point today um, where he talks about the Holy Spirit being upon Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to deal with that. And then we're going to hit the pause button on Luke's gospel, step out and take a look for a few weeks at the Holy Spirit. Who he is, what he does, getting a full understanding of him. Not a limited understanding, but a full understanding. So... Previously on Luke, Jesus has been baptized. He's been led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's been tempted by the devil. And I want to just read from the end of, or from the middle of Luke chapter 3, actually, just to sort of put, put what we're doing today into its context. So if you go back to the middle of chapter 3, and particularly verse 21, and... Uh, I'll read a couple of verses, jump to the end of chapter 3, and then move into chapter 4. 3.21 says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him. This painting actually is by a guy called Daniel Bonnell. And the fella has a serious touch with a paintbrush. Like... You want to go and look at just some of the paintings that he has done um, of, of just biblical imagery. Absolutely class. But this obviously is a picture of, of Jesus' baptism and his anointing by the Holy Spirit. I think it's class. So the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came and said, You are my son, whom I love with you I'm well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, and on goes the list to the end of chapter 3, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we get this emphatic declaration over and over again through that portion to make the point, Jesus is the son of God. Right? At the start of chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, nobody else. It was God himself, the Holy Spirit, led Jesus into the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, questioning what God has said. That's what the devil does. God speaks, the devil shows up, particularly at times of weakness, tiredness, whatever, and starts to question what God has said to you, to me, and to Jesus in this case, if you are the Son of God. Verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee 
in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. 30 years Jesus has spent. Does that car belong to any of you? 30 years Jesus has spent being subject to his parents, learning in the synagogue, praying, studying the scriptures. He's been baptized. He's been tested, tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And now his public ministry is going to begin at 30 years old. I think sometimes we send people into public ministry way too quickly (laughs) before they are ready, before they have been tested, before they have been proved. Jesus was 30 years old when he went into his public ministry. And I want to make a point straight off the bat here because the reason I read chapter 4, a wee bit of chapter 4, was to remind you of the fact that Jesus was tested in the wilderness. And then in verse 14, he comes out of that in the power of the Spirit. If you want to experience life and ministry in the power of the Spirit, you will go through wilderness experiences. And if you want something to keep you going through the wilderness experiences, through the dry and difficult spells, it is the fact that when God allows stuff like that to happen, there is a purpose and there is an outcome that he is working towards. And the purpose here and the purpose for many of us, but we miss it because we burn out in the wilderness, the purpose is that we would go on and move forwards in the power of the Spirit. But too many of us don't make it through that wilderness journey. We dry up. We leave our calling behind. We've talked about this before. Job looked at his time of testing and he said, you know what's going to happen after my time of testing is over? I'm going to come forth like gold. (laughs) I'm going through absolute misery here, about as much misery as any human being could experience. Sickness and loss of family and and loss of of his, his flocks and his herds. and Everything's collapsing on Job. But he says, when I come out of this, I'm going to be like gold. God is doing something in me during this difficult period. Jesus said to Peter the night before the crucifixion, he says, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Satan wants to throw you about and see what you're made of. But I've prayed for you, Peter. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. So Peter knows when he's gone through that time of testing, at the other side, there is a purpose. And Peter is going to be a strengthener of people when he comes out. Jesus himself, it says about the cross in Hebrews, it was for the joy set before him that he endured. Whenever we have an instinct in life to just have something to look forward to, talk to any kid that's revising for exams. They will have something and they will be saying over and over again, when these exams are over, I am going to whatever. And they will have wee things that they just hang out in the distance to look forward to. If you're going through a difficult time at work or whatever, you're just thinking, once I get this week over, I'm going to whatever. That's entirely instinctive for us when we're going through difficult times to look towards something at the end of it. And whenever we're in a wilderness experience, believe me, hang on, stick at it, cling to what God has said because he's bringing you out in the power of the Holy Spirit for a purpose. Um, Because you see, God has to develop character in us. If you want a, a, a sort of a case study in what it looks like to have the power of the Holy Spirit on you, without the appropriate character, go read Samson. Read the story of Samson and Judges. A man who was powerfully anointed by the Holy Spirit, yet he did not have the character to handle it 
For the vast majority of his life, he got it right at the end when he was willing to die. He got it and he looked an awful lot like Jesus at that point. But for the rest of his life up to that point, his character was a mess. God cannot clothe us with the power of the Holy Spirit until he develops character within us. And frequently that happens in the wilderness. I want you to see what Jesus did then. So he's come out of the desert, he's come out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And just look at what he does first, because this sort of struck me a wee bit. He was teaching. Ha ha! Yes, and all the teachers said, there are no teachers here. (laughs) You let me down. Yeah, he was teaching. That's what he did first. Now, later in this chapter, he'll cast out demons. And later in this chapter, he'll heal the sick. But the first thing he does is he teaches. He goes and he instructs people. Satan tries to get in the wilderness. Satan tries to get Jesus. Do something crazy good that people will come to you. Turn stones into bread. Jump off the the highest point of the temple and, and angels will come and rescue you. And you'll look awesome and you'll draw a crowd. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to go and teach people the word of God. And he goes into their synagogues and he goes around the region and he instructs them in the scriptures. The power of the word of God. There is a reason why we do this every Sunday morning. There's a reason. It says on that board that one of our values is word and spirit. And there is an inherent belief that is fundamental to this church that as we declare God's word... His Spirit comes along and does something powerful in our hearts. I have had times where people have contacted me and said, you know what, on Sunday morning I was really encouraged you know, about such and such, or I was really challenged about such and such, and I think to myself, I don't actually remember mentioning either of those things. But in the environment of faith, where the Word of God, the Word of life is being held out, and the Holy Spirit is present, God's dealing with hearts, and it's powerful. And it's, it's a simple act of faith. What you will not hear very much of here is, is like, you know, five steps to overcome such and such. Here's five steps to overcome depression. Here's, here's three steps to overcome addiction. You, you'll not get a lot of that. You'll get three steps for everything. Father, the love of the Father, the rule of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's your three steps. That's every three-step sermon. That's everything in your life that you need. The Father's love, the rule and reign of King Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. And that's what you will get week after week after week after week. Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's what you will get because then the Spirit will come and mix with that Word and transform our hearts and change us. I sometimes listen to, to, to messages online and I'm amazed at how long some people can preach without mentioning the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. I'm just amazed. A whole pile of wisdom about life and getting through work on Monday and straightening out this and that and the other thing. But I'm like, where's the Christ-exalting message that is then followed up by the power of the Holy Spirit? So Jesus teaches the people. He instructs them in the Scriptures. And then he goes to, to Nazareth. In verse 16, he goes to his hometown where he'd been brought up. Everybody knew him. Sometimes it's hard to lead a transformed life in your hometown. Sometimes it's hard to lead uh, something when you're with the people that you've grown up with. Every now and again, I bump into someone that I haven't seen in 20 years, 25 years, who maybe tore about when I was a teenager with them. And, and uh, they'll say to me, I hear you're leading a church now. 
And I say, aye. And they just look at you, you know. There's that awkward silence. Really? You? <laughs> you know? It's hard in your hometown. It's hard among the people that you know that you grew up with. And Jesus here is in his hometown of Nazareth. And he declares what he's come for. Now this is vital. And Luke majors on this little passage and he moves it in the order of his gospel, you know, different from the other gospel writers because he wants to emphasize it right from the outset. Now, this is so, so important. So important. Jesus gets up in the synagogue. It's his custom to go there. And in verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, so that's an Old Testament prophet, was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And he stood up and he reads this. Now, I want to tell you, this is, you ever hear about a manifesto? The Conservative Party manifesto. All of the things that they're going to do, they don't do. And, and, and the Labour Party manifesto. Well, this is not the manifesto of the Conservative Party or the Labour Party. Look at those infants looking through the window. Local riffraff. <laughs> This is, not, this is not the manifesto of the Democratic Unionist Party. This is the manifesto of the Holy Spirit. If you are a child of God and if you are part of the kingdom of God, this is the manifesto that you have lined up with. A manifesto is a declaration of intent. A manifesto is a public proclamation. This is what we are going to do. And what Jesus does in this passage is he gives his manifesto for his ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. And he's quoting Isaiah 61. Because he has anointed me. And I want to just look at the things that Jesus has been anointed to do. And if we are not lining up with these things, we need to check our hearts, check our ministries, check how we spend our time and our resources. Because this is what Jesus is about. He is about proclaiming good news to the poor. He is about proclaiming freedom for the prisoners. He is about the recovery of sight for the blind. And he is about setting the oppressed free. That's what Jesus is about. Now I want to just quickly look at each of those things and check our own hearts. He has come to proclaim good news to the poor. The gospel is good news. And if we present the gospel, the story of Jesus and what he offers as anything other than good news, we're doing a bad job. It is good news. It involves the conviction of sin. It involves repentance. It involves people being unsettled. But it ultimately is good news. It is life. It is freedom and it is forgiveness. And we must make sure that our presentation of Jesus to people is good, not painted over with gold and all shone up and, and, and presented in a, in a misleading way. But it must be a, a, a gospel that brings a sense of hope for transformation, hope for forgiveness, hope that the penalty and the power of sin is broken and taken away. It's good news. It's good news. If someone comes to us and we talk to them about Jesus and they go away feeling condemned, Bad news, bad job. Sort yourself out. We need to change how we're doing things. Because people should come in and hear good news about a life of freedom from sin. And the poor, good news to the poor. Not, excuse me, but not a, 
not a nice, cushy, middle-class Bible study. Not a wee sort of happy huddle just getting together and patting each other in the back and, and not affecting the community and the poor that they are living among. How are we influencing and impacting the poor? The materially poor, the spiritually poor, how are we affecting them? Because Jesus says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. Also to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now, this is actually probably going back to Babylon. And the picture here is whenever people are in prison in Babylon or whenever they're captive in a foreign land, it is because of sin. So Jesus says, the good news that I'm proclaiming to the poor, the freedom that I'm bringing is for those who are slaves. And you might sit and think, well, I'm not a slave. You know, I'm free and I can get up and go and come and do what I want. But he's talking about people who are enslaved to sin. Sin. (laughs) Nothing else. Governed by sin, governed by selfishness and greed and appetites. He says, those people are enslaved. I have not come to make them feel bad. I've come to set them free. I've come to bring them out of that prison, out of that dungeon of sin and set them free. It's the recovery of sight for the blind. Now, Jesus did heal blind people. And I believe that was literal, physical healing of blind people. But it also spoke of a more miraculous thing, and that is the, the opening of spiritually blind eyes. Listen to, to 2 Corinthians 4, just to hear what the devil does. 2 Corinthians 4 says, The God of this age, it's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil has blinded people. They might have 20-20 vision in the natural, but spiritually they are blinded to who Jesus is. And Jesus comes and says, I've come to bring recovery of sight to the blind. I've come to lift off that darkness so that they can actually see clearly. And that happened most memorably in, in Luke's other book, in Acts chapter 9. I'll not go to it, but in Acts chapter 9, there's a guy called Saul. He runs around killing Christians He encounters the risen Jesus and he's struck blind. And a few days later, he's in the house of a guy called Ananias. Or Ananias visits him. And the blindness is healed. And it is a picture not just of physical blindness, but Saul in his religious life was blind. And Jesus has come to lift the blindness off and give him sight. And then to set the oppressed free. Again, you know, just as as the, the captives, the prisoners could refer to those who were in Babylon, the oppressed could refer back to the story of the Exodus and those who were oppressed by Egyptian taskmasters. What is it that oppresses people in our community? Oppression means holding people down, holding them back, putting a weight on them. You've got demonic oppression. You've got the sheer darkness of demonic behavior. But I think even worse than that is the oppression. And Jesus came face to face with it over and over again. It was the oppression, listen to me, it was the oppression of religion. The faith of Abraham had become completely distorted into hundreds of rules and a religious system that was almost, in fact it was, impossible, 
impossible to satisfy it. And people were oppressed. When he says in Matthew's gospel, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I don't think he's just talking about people who are tired. He's talking about the oppression and the weight of religion that crushes people and holds them down, that they cannot actually live under it. And that, I think, is part of the oppression that Jesus has come to set people free from. Not just the demonic, but also the religious. And you can see there that, that Jesus, in his manifesto then, he has come and he has said about what's going to happen to those around him. He's come and he's talked about the, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. And we were at a, a, a gathering of leaders on Friday over in Balliard's castle, far side of Armagh. And we're just, you know, discussing and, and, and some things were being kicked around towards the end of the day. And Neil Dawson actually said something that was really, really quite profound, I thought. He said, the question is not, what will our church look like in five years? That's a, a lot of churches will, will say that. You know, what, what, what will we look like in five years and this and that? He, say, he says, you know, he's been thinking lately or been reading and influenced by somebody lately. The question is not, what will our church look like in five years? The question is, what will our community look like in five years? Because of the church. Is that not a better thing to hold out in front of us? Not a case of what will, what will we look like? How many people will be here? What will our budget be like? What will Sunday mornings look like? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, what will this town look like? What will be different in five years because there's a group of people who have signed up to the manifesto of King Jesus to see the gospel preached to the poor, to see prisoners set free, blind eyes opened, and their oppressed released? What will that look like in a community, in a town, in, in the lives of the people around us. That's a better way to look. Because Jesus ultimately came to transform hearts. But when hearts are transformed, there has to be an overflow to the surrounding community. There has to be. He says at the end of, of the, the passage that he quotes in verse 19, he says that he's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, he's referring to Leviticus in my reading plan, I'm currently chomping through Leviticus. Bless us all, it's hard work, I have to say. When you get to Leviticus, the audio Bible comes out. You know, just please help me, read it to me, because it's hard work. But in, the, in the, the journey of Leviticus, when you come to chapter 25, you read about this amazing thing called the year of Jubilee. And the way it worked was every seventh year, the land was to get a year off, a Sabbath. The land itself was to be allowed to rest. And God would provide so abundantly in the year before that they would have enough food for the seventh year to keep them going. And the ground was to be left and, and just let it rest, let it recover. And that was to happen every seventh year. And that would happen for a cycle of seven sevens. What's seven sevens? It is 49. 49 years that would happen. And then the 50th year, was called the year of Jubilee. Nothing to do with the Queen, although she's taken it. But the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. It was a special year. And the things that happened in the year of Jubilee is that debts were cancelled. Land was restored to people that had been taken away from them. And slaves were set free. 
And Jesus comes and says, that's now. (laughs) He says, that's now. That is why I am here. He finishes off that passage. He says, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has not come to establish a religion. He has not come to to give people a bunch of rules to live by. If someone asks you on the street tomorrow, what did Jesus actually come to do? He came to cancel debt. That's sin. I'd love it if he would cancel my mortgage. But you know what? That's a really small thing compared to having your sins cancelled. It really is. We have to get our perspective right. He came to cancel the debt of our sin, restore to us that which the enemy has taken away and set us free. That's a whole lot better than the bad news of religion of all of the things that you're going to have to stop doing or all the things you're going to have to start doing that you don't want to do. That's not good news. Good news is debts cancelled, land restored, slaves free, and as we're going to look at over the next month or two is, the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, transforming you from within. That's good news. That's good news, and that's what Jesus came to do. The year of Jubilee. The word Jubilee then comes into Latin as Jubilate, and it means joy joy. He came to bring joy. Not giddy happiness, but deep, lasting contentment. That's what Jesus came to do. And initially, the response of the people is good. That's a good sermon, brother. Preach it. You know, they say to him in verse 15, right at the start, where where it says that he taught in their synagogues. Look at verse 15. It says, everyone praised him. Your class preacher, Jesus. Love listening to you. You're really good. And then verse 22, after he he has rolled up the scroll and sat down. And he said to them in verse 21, he says, this scripture is fulfilled today in your hearing. In verse 22, all spoke well of him. Go on, Jesus. Preach it, lad. We're with you. We love this. We love this message. And you know what? They loved the message because they totally misunderstood it because they thought this means Jesus has come to whip the Romans. The Romans that oppress us and hold us down and tax us, he's come and he's going to just seriously kick Roman backside and drive them out of town and we're going to rule the whole world. Class. Preach it, Jesus. Love it. But they haven't got it. They haven't got it. And Jesus goes on to explain things to them a little bit. And he says to them in verse, he goes back to two stories in the Old Testament just to make his point. He says to them, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. In other words, he says to them, whenever God worked powerfully through Elijah, it wasn't with a Jew. It wasn't a Hebrew. It was a Gentile. It was someone from outside your nation, from outside your circle, outside the people that you like to mix with. It was someone that you don't like. And the crowd listening to the sermon are starting to get a wee bit disgruntled. And then he goes a wee bit further and he says, tell you what, there's, we talked about Elijah. Let's talk about Elisha. And he says, in Elisha's time, there were lots of people in Israel with leprosy. But none of them, none of them was cleansed. Just Naaman the Syrian. 
not only a Gentile, but actually the leader of an enemy army. And Jesus is starting to turn things a wee bit here. And he says to him, do you know what? You might not get what you want because I've come to show grace. I am the, the, the one descended from Abraham to bless all nations, all nations, all backgrounds, all races, rich and poor, slave and free, black and white, Protestant and Catholic. I'm here to bless all people with the good news. And you know what, Israel? You might have to deal with a question, and church, we might have to deal with a question, and Jonah had to deal with a question. What if God saves somebody that you don't like? <laughs> what if God transforms somebody that you don't really get on with? What if he even has the audacity to use them in his kingdom to great impact? Oh, boy, boy. Could we handle that? Could we handle that? Because they're starting to get uneasy now because Jesus is saying, no, no, you've misunderstood. I'm not here to whip the Romans. I'm here to die for the Romans and for the Syrians and for everyone, everyone. Not just for you, Israel. Not just so that you can rule the world. I am here for all nations. And you know what? Every preacher knows that at some stage during the sermon, People shift from praising and saying, that's good, preach it. And they'll get to the point where they're like, furious. <laughs> this is all the same message. And he's just set them up and they're all, they're all yeah. And then he, he turns things a wee bit and they're just like raging with him. <laughs> At some point in every good sermon, you should want to kill the preacher. <laughs> okay, that's, that's the sign that the job has been well done. And they get up, drive him out of town. Same sermon, not a month later. See how fickle people are? Especially when something new comes along. Jesus come along with something new and he's come along with a message of, of God's grace and God's mercy and they're all gathering around and saying, yeah. And then all of a sudden they turn. Just beware novelty. Can I tell you something? See, when you start something new, it attracts an awful lot and the sooner, frankly, you get rid of it, the better. <laughs> Sometimes a good church growth strategy is to actually just do something to actually, you know, thin things out a wee bit. When we started way back at the very, very start meeting in houses, we started, we had 60, 70, 80 people cramming into houses. And there's a real sense of there's too many people. <laughs> there's too, they're, not, they're, they're, they're not all actually on this mission. And Jesus offends them. They drive him out of town, take him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. There you go. Sermon ends with a preacher being took to a cliff. Don't. Okay? And it wasn't because he preached too long. It wasn't because it was too cold. They took him and they went to throw him off a cliff because he had poked, poked them somewhere they didn't want poked. I've come for all people. I've come for the Gentiles. You need to change your perspective, Israel. I've come for the broken. I've come from the people, for the people that you look down on. I've come for the people that you hate. I've come for the people that you don't actually have anything in common with or want to spend any time with. I've come for them. And Israel's response is, right, you know, let's put an end to this. Now, that's a, that's a tight sermon. 
That's a tight sermon. In a few verses, you look at how those people have shifted towards him. And look as well at how the devil is now functioning through people. Because just a lot of verses ago, the devil came to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God, why don't you go and stand on a high place and throw yourself off? And Jesus, no. And then just a short time later, there's a crowd taking Jesus to a high place to push him off. See how the devil (laughs) comes back. Subtle. Do you know what, folks? When you're anointed by the Holy Spirit, when you have a calling of God on your life and you're proclaiming a message that is in line with the manifesto of the kingdom, that is for the poor, the prisoner, the oppressed, the broken, the cast down, those in society that religious people have no time for, when you're coming with a spirit-anointed message of grace and hope for those people, there will be people who will want to throw you off a cliff. There will. Get used to it. Jesus does not speak one angry word to them in this, at the end of this passage. And, and this is, you know, I just want to make one more point about the Holy Ghost and then we're done. Just in case any of you are thinking, where is the nearest cliff? It's gone on a while. <laughs> Jesus turned and he walked through the crowd. And he never went back to Nazareth, according to the Gospels. We don't read of him in Nazareth again. He was done. Be careful. Listen to me. Be careful about rejecting Jesus. In case he he walks away and says, okay. He never went back to Nazareth. As far as I know, reading the rest of the Gospels, it's not recorded. I want to finish just by setting us up for what will come over the next couple of months. The importance of being... Spirit anointed. What does anointed mean? Well, when you anoint somebody, you pour olive oil over their heads. Okay, that's pretty much it. And in the Old Testament, things that got anointed were some of the furniture in the tabernacle was anointed. And priests were anointed. And kings were anointed. Publicly, there was a ceremony and and, and oil was poured on their head. And it was a sign that this person is being set apart for a holy purpose. Nigel talked about it last week. Set apart for a purpose. Every one of you, this is not trite cliche for a Sunday morning to make people feel good. Every single one of you, there is a purpose on your life. The Holy Spirit wants to anoint you to go and fulfill that purpose in line with this manifesto of the kingdom. Every single one of you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Anointing was to set you apart for a purpose. And here's something that you've got to get, folks, and this goes against the theology of Northern Ireland churches, some of them. I've gotten trouble for saying this before. Jesus could do nothing without the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that rattles your cage, you need to go and think hard about the incarnation. He, ha- he became human. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. I don't understand it. I can't. <laughs> There are things you can't get your head around, and that's actually quite reassuring to me to follow God that I can't fully get my head around sometimes. He was fully man, fully human, 30 years, born, growing up, learning obedience to his parents, and 
He did not do anything in public ministry until the Holy Spirit came upon him. Now that is Bible truth. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit. He shows us what a human being completely given over to God and completely anointed with the Holy Spirit can actually do. And the things that we seek to do, we must do them in the same manner and in the, in the same power that he did them in. Peter, I think, was preaching in, in Acts 10 and he says, You know what has happened? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Jesus did not start his ministry until the Spirit was upon him. How have we got to the point that we think we can send people into ministry because they've gone through a theological education? How have we got, that's not to knock that, that is a useful thing and a good thing. But how have we got to the point that we think we can take an 18-year-old boy and three years later, send him into ministry without the wilderness and without the power of the Holy Ghost. He's going to get devoured. <laughs> How have we got to that point? Jesus did everything in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we must do likewise. All of the Gospels talk about the Spirit coming on Jesus at his baptism. John knew that Jesus then would baptize others in the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist says, this, this one who has come, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to plunge people into the Holy Ghost. And we see the Spirit and the power of God manifested in everything Jesus did. As he cast out demons, it was by the Spirit of God. As he healed the sick, it was the Spirit and the power of God. In the crucifixion, according to Hebrews 9, his crucifixion, Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God. Even at the crucifixion, he did it through the Spirit. In Romans 8, when it speaks about his resurrection, who raised him from the dead? The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. His death, his resurrection, his ministry, everything he did was done in the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul then <coughs> says to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, do you think you can start in the spirit and then continue in the flesh? Do you think you can live this life in your own strength? You think you can do ministry and follow the manifesto of the kingdom in your own strength? Foolish Galatians. We need the power of the Holy Ghost, church. We need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Filled with the Holy Ghost. Unashamedly filled with the Holy Spirit. And get ourselves to be a Christ-centered, Spirit-filled people. In Acts chapter 1, this is the last slide, you will receive power. He says to the disciples, don't leave Jerusalem. But Jesus, we've been with you for three years and we've learned loads of stuff from you and we've seen you do the business and we've done some of the business. We've cast out demons as well. We've seen them subject us. We've seen people healed. We've learned from you. We've heard you teach and preach. You've taught us how to pray. We've got it. He says, don't leave Jerusalem until the Spirit has come upon you. Don't even dare try to step out in ministry without the power of the Spirit. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. <clears throat> if Jesus needed to be anointed by the Spirit, 
How dumb are we if we think we can actually continue his ministry without it? This needs to be a church that cries out for the power of the Spirit, for the presence of the Spirit. It needs to become more of our focus, even in our prayer meetings, that we are just, you know, we bring our needs, of course, we bring all our needs to, to the Lord, but there has to be a, just a, a yearning for a filling and a covering and an empowering to actually do what we're called to do. Yeah? Okay, thank you, Jesus. Lord, we love you and we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that has empowered us. And we just want to say together, united in our faith, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. We need you. We need your power. We need your strength. We need your anointing. Come, Holy Spirit. For those in the wilderness, Lord, will you just encourage them that maybe at the end of the wilderness, there's a new anointing. There's a new power that is going to come on them in their ministry, Father. But God, I just ask that this church would never, ever drift away from the power of the Holy Ghost. That we exalt Jesus by the power of the Spirit. That we glorify Him by the power of the Spirit. That we live our lives transformed by the power of the Spirit. That we see our community transformed by the power of the Spirit. Oh God, give us a kingdom vision. That you did not come just so we would have a better day at work tomorrow. But you came you came to proclaim good news and freedom and release and joy and jubilee. So Lord, fill us with your spirit to continue that mission in this place and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.